This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm here with Sharla Bear. And uh, we've been lost. We've been lost for the last half hour at least, and now we are hoping to be found. Sharla, where are we? Well, I mean, we're seeing a lot of really tall buildings, and that's a really good sign. So I think that we should go to the really tall buildings and try to figure it out. Well, and I see some streets here, a street name I actually recognize. It's Glebe Road. Let's go to it and see what we find. Okay. I've never actually been here before. This is completely unfamiliar to me. I mean, I know we're in civilization now, but I still don't know what this place is. But imagine if right now somebody we knew just walked right by or drove right by. Wouldn't that be weird? Yeah, I would not expect that at all, considering we don't even know where the heck we are. Well, when Dan Bobkoff goes to New York City, he pretty much always runs into somebody he knows. What are the odds? New York is such a big place. There are 8 million people, busy sidewalks, and crowded subways. And when I cram into one, I look at all the cars and all the people. There are hundreds on one train. And yet in all this humanity, I feel like I'm a magnet. Yeah, one time I ran into four people I knew in one day. There was outside a store, I bumped into a friend from college. Then I saw someone from grade school. Then a few hours later, another old friend was on a subway platform. And then that night, this was the climax, I ran into my ex-girlfriend in the same subway car coming back from Brooklyn. Never mind that I live in Cleveland and she lives in Wisconsin. It's pretty weird. So it's a few months later now. I'm back, and this time I'm armed with my recorder. So as I'm walking down the street in New York, I can't decide if the odds of running into somebody are great or unlikely. This is a mission. I have my microphone out. Now I just need some serendipity. My first stop, Columbia University. I'm in the statistics department, in the office of Tian Zhang, to find out the odds of bumping into someone I know. But first, she has her own story for me. She's from China. She did her undergrad there. And one night she was having dinner in New York with a friend from back home. And we were talking about uh, old stories back in the college days. We were mentioning the, the girls living in the next room. So they're gossiping, talking about this one girl from their dorm. And then guess who walks up to the table? She said, you, you guys were talking about me. Busted. And that was really totally shocking. So Tian is shocked. And it's her job to know the probability of this kind of thing. She's been doing some research on social networks, and she has a test for me. On a piece of paper, Tian writes 10 names. Next to each, I write how many people I know with that name. Oh, Emily's know a lot of Emily's. Tian is using data from the Social Security Administration, and she's there crunching the numbers and estimating my social network to be, and here's the number, somewhere between 523 people and 963 people. I had no idea I was this popular. So if we do 100, 200 times... Then she factors in the subway. That is 40,000. So it's one Tian says it's reasonable that I would run into someone every 200 rides, given the size of my social network. And if you multiply that out, the chance of running into two people hours apart on the subway, like I did that one night, about 1 in 40,000. So I'm walking downtown now after my interview with the Columbia statisticians. And I have my microphone ready to go to capture any run-ins that might occur. No luck for me yet, but I see it happening to other people. 
Okay. You were just walking out of the cafe here, and then you ran to your friend? Just crossed, we just crossed the street. This is Annette and her friend, Shirley. You weren't expecting to meet up here, though? No, 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 no not at all. Um, does this happen to you often? Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Sort of an aspect of living in New York? Yeah, in the subway. Yeah. I live in Cleveland now, but I'm always running into people in New York when I'm here. It's a small world now, right? But on this trip, I'm coming up empty. I get on the subway at 72nd Street, and I turn off my recorder. And that's when it happens. I didn't realize you're in the city. I am not. I look to my right, and I know I know this person. I went to college with her, I think. What's her name again? So this is really weird because uh, I'm actually doing a radio story about running into people in New York. Oh, really? That's funny. Every time I come to the city. It turns out her name is Sona Rye. We were friendly in college. I mean, it happens to me quite a bit. How often would you say? Well, like, let's say two days ago, I was on 14th Street... And it happened twice in 15 minutes. I was just a friend of my boyfriend's, and the other person was someone I knew from... Actually, someone I knew from my childhood. Really? It was really random. Really random. And even if I know the odds, say, one in 10,000 or one in 40,000, it still feels that way every time I run into someone. So now I just have to go back to the statistics department and ask them the chances of running into someone while doing a story about the chances of running into someone. Bobkoff. He's a public radio reporter from Cleveland and apparently a magnet for strange encounters. So, Charlotte, has something like that ever happened to you? Actually, it happens a lot. And it's kind of crazy because I'm from Fairbanks, Alaska, which is, as a lot of people probably know, not a very big town in the middle of a big state. When I was in Bruges, Belgium, I was at a nightclub and A guy came up behind me and spoke to me in English and told me to stick the tag of my shirt back in. And I found out that he was the son of my junior high principal in Fairbanks. (laughs) That is so completely random. This edition of B-Side is all about lost and found. And um, it's about time we get ourselves found, I think. I'm I'm really feeling like we are um, just about there. If there was ever a better indication of being found, you are here. We have a map here, uh, like a a big sign, and a you are here. That's that's it. Yeah, at least the map found us. We might not know exactly where we are, but the map does. Um, We could ask these people over here for directions. Hi, guys. What's happening? Hey, um, we are not from around here, and we were just wondering if you could help direct us to the metro stop. Oh. Yeah, if you go back up this way, and then you turn right where their where their cars turn in, and it's, there's a cut in between. Go across the street, and Boston will be on your right. Boston Metro will be on your right. All right, thank you. Well, we try to walk ourselves to Metro. I want to play this interview that I did with a guy named Adam Roberts. He's a food blogger. He's the guy behind AmateurGourmet.com. So it sounds great for him. Was he lost? Yeah, he he was lost. Um, and he sort of found himself through food. So how, how did he do that? Well, it all started in law school, and I asked him how he got there. 
I was a creative writing major in college. And when I got to be a senior, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this creative writing degree. So I guess I'll go to law school. So I applied. I got in. And I, I started. And pretty quickly, I was absolutely 100% miserable. I'd never been more miserable in my entire life. It was like having an organ put into your body that just didn't take, but having to live with it. And that's what it felt like for a very long time. So you're in law school. How did you discover cooking? I would come home and I would just watch the Food Network just to sort of unwind. And I just, I guess I was secretly craving this need to like touch food and like smell things and just have something that was, that would bring me back to life. And What's interesting about that is I come from a family where nobody cooks. There was no cooking when I grew up. <laughs> Thanksgiving was So had, cooking was going out to dinner. Yeah, we went out to dinner. We went to Thanksgiving at like at my grandmother's like club, you know, retirement home. Um, you know, so we just never ate at home. And so this idea that I was going to start cooking all of a sudden was just very peculiar and very strange, but it was just the most satisfying thing I could possibly do to get over the the malaise of being in law school. And so I just got really 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 into it. When you went into law school, did you have an idea of something that you really wanted to be when you grew up and and law school was just what you were doing or did you not really know? You know, there, there was the fantasy and then there was the reality. Like I, I'd always just had this creative side to me. But in terms of the practical, how am I going to turn this into a career? I had no idea what to do. I mean, the, the logic was you'll be a lawyer, you'll make your money being a lawyer, but you'll get to do all your hobbies and all your, you know, writing and creative stuff on the side. You know, that will... That'll be how you'll sustain yourself. But the problem was that I just couldn't stomach the law part of it. Let's fast forward to your third year of law school mm -hmm. and you're doing an internship. The head guy there sat me down. He's like, Adam, your heart is just not in this. Like, I can tell like you're not, this is not the life for you. You know, and it really hit me really, really hard. And that's what sort of sent me in a totally different direction. So I was like, well, maybe I'll write a play and submit it to grad school for playwriting just, just for, on a whim, you know, on a lark. And I'll just apply to like three really good schools. And if I get in for playwriting, maybe that's a sign that I shouldn't be a lawyer and maybe I should be a writer. Just when it looked like pretty bleak, I got an acceptance letter from NYU. And right around that time is when I started my food blog, um, which also around that time really took off. So it was like suddenly like this guy's statement to me set me on a totally different path. And like a couple of months later, I was living in New York, going to school for playwriting and making my money as a food blogger. So it was just <laughs> a very strange turn of events. You'd been blogging for, I guess, a little while. Mm -hmm. And I guess the real turning point then is this thing called, and, and it's a real um, subtle name, <laughs> Janet Jackson Breast Cupcakes. Right. When Janet Jackson showed her breast at the Super Bowl, I thought it would be a funny idea to make a Janet Jackson breast cupcake. So I made this cupcake. It was a mocha cupcake from the Nigella Lawson cookbook uh, that had a mocha frosting. I put a Hershey's Kiss for the nipple and created a nipple shield using white icing. And I put it up on the blog. And I went to sleep. And I got up the next morning. I went to law school. And when I came home and turned on my computer, my email popped up. I had like 50 messages. I checked the statistics. I'd had like 50,000 hits in one day. And it had been linked <laughs> on collegehumor.com and instapundit.com. And CNN wrote me an email that they wanted to come to my apartment to do a story about the Janet Jackson breast cupcake. So almost literally overnight, my blog took off. And it was a crazy, crazy story that ultimately established my, my career in a weird way. And so that was... That was it. That was it. Yeah. I mean, once it was on the radar like that, I had an audience of strangers. You know, it was people were reading what I was writing um, who I didn't know. And that was an exciting moment. And it was a turning point. 
And from that point on, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So basically, you, in a matter of not very long, went from miserable law student to, I guess, do you feel like you have found yourself, that you this is this is your life? <laughs> it's very odd. I mean, I don't know. I think I have found myself in the sense that what I do every day to make money is the thing that I want to be doing. So that's to me, that's some kind of success, you know. Um, whether or not I just want to be a food person is up for debate. I mean, I still am interested in playwriting and other forms of writing. But for right now, yeah, I, I do feel absolutely 100% fulfilled, especially in light of my other career path where I might have been a lawyer. And, and all because of Janet Jackson. <laughs> all because of Janet Jackson. Adam Roberts can be found at AmateurGourmet.com or in your local bookstore. He wrote a book called The Amateur Gourmet, How to Shop, Chop, and Table Hop Like a Pro. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm here with Charlotte Bear. And we are walking in, um, I guess, a neighborhood called Ballston in Virginia. Yes, we have found our way out of what seemed like a cul-de-sac in the middle of, well, it was a cul-de-sac in the middle of a very residential neighborhood that uh, we had no idea where we were. And now we are here. And this neighborhood conveniently has all of these signs around with maps on them that say, you are here. And there's another one here. We're trying to find the metro station. I have a feeling we're pretty close, but let's take another look at the you are here sign. Okay, all right. We're moving in the right direction, we're there. So if we just stay on this street here, then uh, we'll get to the metro station. I love these little you are here arrows. They make me feel so found. I see the sign over here has an M on it for Metro. I think that we can say we have officially found our way home. And that is a good thing. Normally when you talk about finding something, it's actually a thing. It's not like finding yourself or finding your way. It's, hey, I found this really cool thing at a swap meet. Or I found this really cool thing on the street or something. I mean, maybe this is divulging too much about my character, but I actually found $100 near an ATM machine once, but didn't put the two together and kept it. (laughs) Wow. Well, there are sort of these ethical questions when you find something that isn't necessarily yours to find, but it's not like you stole it either. That's sort of the case with a guy that Mwenda Hasey is going to introduce us to, He finds things at storage unit auctions. She'll explain what that means. Americans are addicted to junk. Storage units are where they hide it. Cecil Williams lives in California's Central Valley. It seems like every small town there has its own storage unit place. Or three. Cecil sees opportunity where most of us just see anonymous sheds. I found pretty much everything everything from uh, Bibles marijuana pipes and bongs all the way up to um, gold rings and um, necklaces. Each unit holds someone's stuff. These things were important enough that they were willing to pay to store them, 
That is, until something goes wrong and for some reason they stop paying their bill. That's where Cecil comes in. Storage facility owners auction off the units when the bills aren't paid. They advertise in the paper or online, and then anyone can participate as long as they can pay for and then haul away what they win. And Cecil wins a lot. It's like a, I look at it like a profitable hobby. I have fun doing it because every time you get a box, and this gets on my wife's nerve that I do this and my daughter, when I open a box and I find something, I'm like, ooh, look at this, ooh, look at this, you know? And they're like, okay, you know, here you get too excited. <laughs> but um, it, to me, I don't know, it's like when you open, it's like a, a treasure hunt because you never know what you're going to get. In Cecil's garage, dusty plastic containers are packed to the ceiling with God knows what. All stuff he won at storage unit auctions. I'm careful not to rub up against a swaying tower of boxes. And then I trip over an old floor buffer. Cecil thinks it belonged to a janitor. Like most of the things he wins, Cecil's planning to sell it. He thinks it'll go for about $1,300. It's weird how something ends up where it ends up. And I'm thinking, and then that, and I start looking at my stuff, like the coins I collect and like that. And I'm like, I wonder if one of these days somebody's going to be opening this, like, ooh, what did I find? Yeah. Cecil tells me storage auctions are a lot like gambling. It can get really addictive. He laughs as he shows me the hole he cut in his fence so he could fit larger stuff like old office furniture into his backyard. Found a whole doll collection of the, the collector Barbies in the boxes. Two sets of nice golf clubs, his and hers I think it was. So it must have been husband and wife. A whole bunch of old collectible baseball cards. One of them in a plastic case was a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. Um, I made over $400 on the dolls. $400 worth of Barbies stored away in a dark storage unit? There's probably a story there. Maybe it was a piece of her childhood she just couldn't give up. Maybe the couple stopped paying their storage unit bills when they got a divorce. Who knows? Usually it's just anonymous junk. It's valuable to someone, but hard to understand without knowing them. Then I found some personal pictures, and then that's when it struck me. I'm like, this is, this is, this is a person. You know, this is people. And then uh, it makes you feel sad. But not sad enough to give up his profitable hobby. The way I look at it is... um. If I don't, if I don't buy it, somebody's gonna get it, you know, buy the stuff. But if the stuff is already out there, gonna go anyways, no matter what, then, then of course, you know, might as well uh, grab it. A few years back, Cecil had a yard sale to get rid of some stuff from an abandoned unit. It had been filled mostly with women's clothes and nothing else too remarkable. There was this Letterman's jacket. He hung it up on the lip of his garage door. One customer made a beeline straight to it. These are my sisters. She died, and then that's when she told us about what happened. Her sister was off, getting off work late at work, and um, she got in a car accident, and uh, she said they didn't even know about the storage unit being sold till it was too late. And she even reached in the pocket, and she pulled out a, a, a medal with the lady's name and all that. So, I mean, you know, she knew exactly what she was talking about. She said she doesn't usually go to yard sales, and she said she saw her signs, and for some reason she drove here. I don't believe in all that kind of stuff, but it was just weird how it happened because I, I was sitting there, and I watched her get out, and she walked straight up to that stuff. This experience brought a pile of old clothes to life. I like the story because it was a double unexpected find for Cecil. He found a unit with enough good stuff to have a profitable yard sale, and he helped the woman's family get a little more closure. There's another unit Cecil loves to talk about, and it was his most profitable find. He's like a kid on Christmas morning showing me the loot he found in this unit. Okay, so who would you guess owns the stuff he found? Limited edition signed footballs, a bunch of copies of a book called I Want to Tell You, a black ski mask, 
and photos with Johnny Cochran after their 1995 trial. Yup, that's right. Cecil hit Pater with what he calls the OJ unit. It belonged to Mike Gilbert. He used to be OJ's agent. It was a fair and square sale. He didn't pay, they sold the stuff. I luck, luckily was there that day, and I bid $125, and I got the unit. Cecil more than made his money back. Let's just say he made bank on eBay. The money is nice, but these days bidding on storage units is really more of a hobby. When he first started, though, it was about survival. When I first um, got the idea about this uh, thing was, uh, you know, I was homeless. It was me and my, she was my girlfriend back then. You know, we're married now. And I had a, a little baby girl, new, you know, newborn baby. So uh, we were at a motel. And I noticed there was up, up the street there, there was some uh, cars and, you know, commotion. So um, I walked over there and it was a storage auction. Cecil's doing well these days. He and his wife both have full-time work. It's not like he needs this. But I don't think he could imagine his life without other people's junk. Now for him, it's less about the loot and more about the story behind it. And ultimately, this is what keeps me in Cecil's garage all afternoon. Wenda Hasey produced that story. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm here with Charlotte Bear, and we are found. We are um, going down the escalator to get ourselves on Metro, which, which means we are, like, basically home, which is kind of amazing. As we almost make it back, we have one last story. It comes from Katie Shroud, and it's about the author of the Br'er Rabbit book. Remember Br'er Rabbit? I think I remember those from when I was a kid. People singing and dancing, birds chirping, something like that. That's about all I remember. <laughs> zip diddy doo da zip diddy yay. That, that Br'er Rabbit. Right. Well, it turns out that the story gets a little bit more complicated, sort of complicated by issues of race. And Katie caught up with the grandson of the guy who wrote the books, who is sort of finding out the history of his grandfather. The first thing you have to understand about Joel Chandler Harris is that at the time he died in 1908, he was this incredibly popular writer. He was right up there with, like, Mark Twain. Almost immediately after he died, they turned his house, which is called the Wren's Nest, into a museum dedicated to his legacy. Because, frankly, people expected he'd be remembered as this great American writer. Joel Chandler Harris was famous for the Uncle Remus stories. Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, the Tar Baby. Br'er Rabbit, he does holler and laugh. Shoo! These were a white man's version of stories that African-American slaves told, and people all over the world loved them. Walt Disney even made a film based on them in the 1940s, Song of the South. My, oh my, what a wonderful day. But then the world changed. People started to see Harris and the Uncle Remus stories in a different light, a negative light. Not only did Harris take this African-American folk heritage and get rich off of it, but over the years his stories were used to reinforce really nasty racial stereotypes. So, was was he a racist? You know, I I think that, I I don't know if he had that term racist. That's Lane Shakespeare, the 26-year-old who runs the Wren's Nest today. I would say that if if we moved Joel Chandler Harris uh, to 2009, well, of course he would be a racist, but I think that uh, everyone would be. (laughs) 
Lane isn't just the head of the museum. He's also the great-great-great-grandson of Joel Chandler Harris. So when I was a kid, I used to come to the Wren's Nest to cut the cake on Joel Chandler Harris's birthday. I would be the little kid that, you know, was the descendant of Joel Chandler Harris, and here's your cake. When Lane accepted the job running the Wren's Nest, he was right out of college. He was an English major, and his last job was being a swim coach for kids. And on my first day, the Georgia Power Man came and knocked on the door and said, I don't want to turn the lights out on Uncle Remus, but y'all haven't paid the bill in like six months. Harris's dicey reputation on race was only one reason the Wren's Nest was in bad shape. Another was the museum's own racial past. After Harris died, the house was taken over by an organization of upper-class white women who decided that only white visitors were welcome. This policy lasted for 60 years, until 1983. Jerry McWilliams remembers being kept out of the wren's nest when she was a kid. And there were um, two little white women that came to the door and told us that we could not come in this house. And we asked her why. And she said because we were Negroes. We continued to come back, and they started using the N-word on us. But here's the irony. Joel Chandler Harris in life was actually fairly racially progressive, at least for a white Southerner. Jerry McWilliams is now a tour guide at the Wren's Nest. She says her understanding of Harris changed when she read more about him. He never really took credit for the stories. Uh, He always gave credit to the slaves for telling him these stories over the years. Jerry believes that Harris respected the African-Americans he wrote about. It's what Lane thinks, too. Even when Harris was alive, folks were afraid that these stories were not going to be told anymore and these stories would fall away. Um, Harris put the words down on the paper and sort of preserved this moment in time uh, in, in sort of a journalistic fashion. So at the Wren's Nest today, the Uncle Remus stories are presented as folklore. The museum has a blog where they talk openly about the uncomfortable questions that Harris raises about race. It doesn't erase the damage that's been done, but what strikes you about the Wren's Nest today is that it is, in part, a museum about the uncomfortable questions. If Harris's reputation as a great American writer was lost, what's found here instead? A different, messier story, but maybe one that we could stand to hear. Katie Shrout is a doctoral student in Atlanta, Georgia. And this is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm here with Charlotte Bear, and uh, we're home. We are. Sometimes it's half the fun just kind of wandering around and trying to figure things out on your own. And uh, so, I don't know. I, I feel really good about this. Well, that's it. We feel good, and that's it for this edition of B-Side. We had stories from Kristen Espelond, Judah LeBlanc, Andrew Walsh, Anna Sachs, Dan Bobkoff, Mwinda Hasey, and Katie Shrout. And Katie also helped us arrange the interview with Adam Roberts. The show was produced by Renee Gattel, Abigail Beshkin, and Peter Christensen. And Peter's the one who helped us get lost. Charlotte Bear, thank you for uh, getting lost and found with me today. It was my pleasure. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about B-Side, to hear these stories again, to see all the pictures that Charlotte's been shooting of our adventure, go to bsideradio.org. That's the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org. I'm Tamara Keith. Thanks for listening.